This is the Fix Your Sciatica Podcast. In today's world, there's an endless amount of possibilities and treatment methods to managing pain, whether it be back pain, sciatica, anything related to the spine, and it can be extremely overwhelming. And I know a lot of people would rather not go underneath the knife and get surgery, but there are some cases where surgery is exactly what is needed and then we can go back into living our lives. And so I myself as a physical therapist, I know of these procedures, but I'm not the one doing those procedures. And today's guest was very kind enough to share his time with us. And he is the uh, leading forefront in some really amazing minimal invasive surgeries for the spine. So today I have Dr. Abbasi and we're going to go right into it, talk about spinal surgeries, what he does and how these surgeries can in fact help people such as yourself. Dr. Abbasi, thank you so much for being on today's episode. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. And, and the pleasure is all mine. I think there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to surgeons, surgery, the techniques, and even just is surgery going to help out with pain? So I think that we're going to be able to cover a lot of information here. But for the listeners who might not have heard of you before, or just or just introducing to you uh, to you for the first time, tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and uh, how did you got involved with spinal surgery? Well, I lived and uh, on three continents. I'm born in Iran. I'm um, after first year of my med school in Iran. I, it was a turmoil. It was a crazy time for lack of other term. I went to Germany. I finished MD and PhD in Germany, University of Heidelberg. I did three years of residency in Germany in neurosurgery. Then I start a, a fellowship in research fellowship in Stanford, California. Then I did a general surgery internship in Dartmouth College. And then I went back and started a whole new residency in Texas. And uh, I have been board certified for the last uh, uh, 10 to actually 11 years. And uh, it took me, I, the joke is that it took me 23 years after the high school to become a neurosurgeon. And I have lots of titles. Each of them in average took me, each letter of those titles took me three years to obtain. <laughs> but uh, I just can tell that uh, I, I learned a lot during that time and I wouldn't have spent my time in any other way. In the last 10 years, I have been specializing myself in the so-called minimal invasive uh, spine surgery. And uh, when I talk about minimal invasive spine surgery, I know that um, this word, everybody has heard this word, minimal invasive spine surgery. And there are a few jokes I'm going to tell during this podcast. One of them is minimal invasive surgery is exactly what what the surgeon does who's talking about it no matter what he does it's always going to be minimally invasive spine surgery because there is no definition of that everybody calls what he does minimally invasive but more or less it's about causing less damage during the surgery itself you know um, in any kind of surgery we have to get to the place to the structure where the problem is and the spine is in exactly in the middle of our body. No matter which angle we take, we have to go through lots of tissue there. And uh, 
it's amazing that uh, first in the last 10, 15 years, our technology is good enough to go and treat those conditions with truly minimal damage to surrounding tissue. Um, and uh, the methods that we have had so far always would require us to open up your belly, put your major organ at risk, or go from the back, not figuratively, literally fillet you open, push all the muscle to the side. By the way, you're a doctor of uh, uh, physical therapy, correct? That there is a joke, right. not a joke among the spine surgeon. We take your patient, we destroy all the muscle in their back. After five surgeries, we send them back to you, say, go fix it. But there's, but truly, for the last uh, you know, the 70 years, the standard of care has been stripping all the muscle from the bone to get where the pathology is. And, you know, as a doctor of physical therapy, you know what happened to the muscle that you detach from the bone, you denervate, they all turn into scar. They're not muscles anymore. They are yeah. scar tissue. You cannot really use them to build up any good foundation for um, for posture, for reflexes, for spine, and so on. And But that is all we could do for a very long time. Just in the last 15 years, our knowledge that we have gained is and technology is good enough to exactly to avoid that, not cause too much damage. I think another thing that we need to talk about is uh, most of the surgeries that we do for the spine is for pain management. And this is just the fact of a good surgeon. If there is any other way to help the patient, surgery should not be considered except two small reasons like acute progressive deficit based on pressure on the nerve and spinal instability, which are less than two to 3% of the cases. Every other case should go through a rigorous process of maximizing all the other treatment to manage the pain before surgery is offered. And you know, one of the problem in human history is that we go always from one extreme to extreme. Um, we used to not do surgery because they were dangerous. And then we used to do a lot of surgery because we could do that. Then we do too much. And then it, it does uh, too difficult to justify that. We stopped doing them and we create a lot of narcotic addicted people because we didn't manage their pain. And then every time we go back and forth, we gain more knowledge and we are coming now to a good center. We understand now when to do surgery, when not to do the surgery. But everybody needs to understand as well that uh, even though we treat the pain, we want to treat the pain, people who have had spine pain, they know how it is. I have had it myself, where you cannot move an inch, where it takes you 15 minutes to get up, get up the chair or 15 minutes to get in and out of a car. So people who have had that, they know this is a different kind of pain. But as well, I hope everybody understand pain is a signal. Pain is not the problem. Pain is not the fire. Pain is the noise of the smoke alarm, that something is burning and we have to pay attention to that. So in the spine, because the maximum amount of uh, nerves are concentrated in our spinal cord right there, that smoke alarm can be very loud and it makes us listen to it. And that is the purpose of the pain, to listen that there's a damage there. Now, there are lots of ways that you know how we can help the patient by, first of all, avoiding things that cause the injury, strengthen the 
core body muscle. Sometimes bracing, injection, and so on. But uh, more or less, they are conditioned that only surgery it can really help the patient. Now, the surgeries has been traditionally very, very invasive. And uh, sometimes uh, that there's an old joke says, doctor, your cure is worse than my disease. In some cases, uh, unfortunately, our surgery caused more damage. That is, uh, we say spine surgery, we get spine surgery because we do cause so much damage in the first surgery that uh, that damage propagate to the next level and next level. But I guess, uh, considering this uh, 2023, our knowledge base, our experience, our technology is just coming all together, becoming mature enough to truly making a huge impact. And we just talked about that. This is a public health issue. It is hard not to know somebody with a spine problem. By the time you are 70 years old, there's only one to 2% chance you don't have a spine problem. Obviously, we have these tremendous protocols to help vast majority of the of this patient without the surgery. But when it comes to the surgery, and make no mistake, this is in Becker's spine, there was an article, 1.62 million of the spine surgeries are, this kind of spine surgery are performing in the United States annually. This is a public health issue and our ways, how we do these surgeries, our standards, which are set in 1950s with so-called posterior lumbar antibody fusion or PLIF, and 1980s with transforaminal lumbar antibody fusion, which is called TLF. These standards are 40 and 70 years old, and they cannot take us to the next step. Um, so uh, I know uh, that you know this is a lots of information to process, but I'm sure you know in your in your professional life, in your in your surrounding, your family, you have encountered many of these facts that we talked about. What makes you interested in the spine surgery? At least what makes me interested is that my both parents had this problem. And they truly, toward the last five to 10 years of their life, at that time, there was really no option. They were homebound. They couldn't do anything. And I felt what a big deal it is. It is hard to be old, but it's so much harder to be old and not being able to walk and be in pain. So that is a truly a public health issue. This episode is brought to you by the Sciatica Protocol. Experience pain relief directly through your phone, anytime, anywhere. Interested in learning more? Check us out at ifixyoursciatica.com slash the-sciatica-protocol. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, one, the pain that we deal with, I think what's really interesting is that if we're looking at just, just general pain scale, say we'll say zero to 10, What's really interesting is that in some cases, and I know especially from like the American public standpoint, is that for the majority of the time, we can live with two to three out of 10 pain. Like that's something that we can live with. And uh, interestingly enough, I, I, I know like dealing with a lot of the insurance companies is that if you have three out of 10 pain or less, you're actually discharged from physical therapy because you are considered functional. But what ends up happening is that we're dealing with this pain for a long period of time. As you said, Dr. Abbasi, the pain that we're experiencing is a is the smoke alarm going off, right? That smoke alarm going off tells us that we need to make a change. And oftentimes, by the time it's too late for us to 
but, but by the time we're trying to address it, it's a little too late. The damage has been done. Uh, before we actually re- started recording this podcast, I, you, you made some really amazing observations. And I think uh, if we're looking at the concept of uh, the car, the car and the human body going through the typical surgical procedures, the PLF and the TLF, um, you were talking about like going through the entire car to fix one specific problem and you come back and the patient's already beaten up. Um, but one of the analogies that I thought you said particularly uh, beneficial was actually say like your spinal discs, right? Because a, a lot of people who are experiencing sciatica pain, they're trying to figure out, is it their disc pain or is it their issues? If they have a herniated disc, what were the causes and everything? So would you be okay with sharing that herniated disc entire analogy? Because I thought that was extremely yeah. powerful to help people visualize that. Yeah. See, um, our spine is made of interspersed bone and disc. That this bone and disc, that's practically what help, hold, what stabilize and enable us to have all the other organ and be able to move and so on. And it moves in a way that this interspersed bone and disc, they, first of all, each disc is a cushion between two bones. And then that's keep this bone separated between each of those two bones, a nerve goes out. That nerves make you move, make you feel, make you do anything you do, except um, your face and the head. Everything you do is based on those nerves, almost everything you do is based on those nerves that exit between two bones. And the cushion between the disc, in a way, behaves like a tire of a car. What that means is you have a good, uh, well uh, um, pressurized tire. Your rim is not on the asphalt because you know you cannot drive like that. But then, when we go uh, and like a tire, there is three reasons a disc become bad, become bad disc, and then you have a problem. Obviously, genetic is always part of it. Is if you have a good brand tire versus a bad tire, you, how you come from the factory. The second fact is even a good tire, you drive it long enough, you're going to have problem. So that's the aging process that we cannot change. And the third factor, which is as well a very important factor, is so-called how you use your tires. If you drive on sharp stones, you're going, you're going to have wear and tear much faster than if you don't drive on sharp stones. Like everybody knows the professional athlete, their joints are 10 to 20 years older than they are because it really put them at a lot of use and so on. I'm not talking about a regular sport, but I'm talking about truly overusing your joint and spine. But eventually, no matter where you are, and that statistic that comes in play, by the time you're 70 years old, there's only one to two percent chance you don't have spine problem. And that is as well proven in the statistic. Spine has been always a major reason for disability. Like in 2015, spine was number two reason for disability in United States, and it was number four globally. Now, spine is number one reason for disability based on a study worldwide. So these are uh, the common problem. These are not rare issues that once in a blue moon, you have a patient like that. This is your mother, your father, your grandparents. Um, it, uh, and that is truly impact our society tremendously. Um, I get a lot of this elderly patient that uh, open surgery is not an option for them because it's too invasive. And the family takes turn taking time off work just to make sure their loved one 
is taken care of. So this is a truly a tremendous economic impact on our society, on our healthcare, and uh, as a whole in the society as all, at all. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, it's affecting a lot of people. And if we're looking at it, and I love this representation or the visualization of the car, I often tell patients when I see them post-op that the surgeons helped replace the tires, the rims, they fixed the car. And now it's my job to help them drive the car correctly. I'm their driving coach. I'm going to teach them, okay, you're going to be approaching this stop sign. Don't slam on the brakes. You have to know you're going to approach the stop sign. You got to step on those brakes slowly. So let's talk about these various different techniques. I know that with minimally invasive spine, I know that, I mean, you just described that there's multiple different areas of the spine that can be addressed. You have the bony landmarks. You also have the discs themselves. You also talked about fusions. So what are some of the most common surgeries that you do at your clinics? Um, and what would the indications be for each one of those techniques? Let's use that car and tire analogy, right? You can have a flat tire, you patch it. But you imagine at times uh, the tire is not just a small hole. It's a slashed open, the knife, samurai sword sticking out of your tire. You have 20 holes. In it, patching, it's not an option anymore. And then you have those cases that not only you had a flat tire, you have been driving uh, from Los Angeles to San Diego on a flat tire. By the time you're at, at, at your destination, after years of using those flat discs, practically the bone has changed and bone grown in all the wrong places. And, and there are lots of vital structure, nerves and so on, just very close proximity to all this structure. And for the people who never had that, I doubt that, uh, they, but they want to know what the direct pressure on nerve look like. I'm, I'm sure anybody have hit his funny bone on the table. There's nothing funny about it, is it? That is how these people Absolutely. are all the time. That is how yeah. it feels to have direct pressure on the nerve. And that is how that pain feels. And uh, imagine now not having this for a moment, having it constantly, these patients are suicidal. These patients gather their pills to commit suicide. And many of them, they tell me, doctor, if you cannot do anything for me, if, if this is all what's left, I don't want it. I understand that. But many times we surgeon, we have learned ways of surgery and we are good at that. We weigh risk versus benefit. And uh, we, Weigh that, and if in the open surgery, traditional surgery, the risks are more than the benefit for the surgery, we say, no, you cannot have the surgery. And I hate to say that for some of our colleagues as well, they do the safe thing, but they do the safe thing for their own practice rather than for the patient, because this patient stop walking, they decondition, they die uh, because the heart gives up on them. Some of them commit suicide, not few of them. You have heard of that narcotic uh, epidemic and lots of you know narcotic death and so on. There is a dark number of those. These are not overdose. These are mask suicides because these patients are in pain and nobody else is able or willing to help them. I have uh, over 1,000 patient testimonials on my webpage, on my YouTube ac account, where many of these patients, they talk, you know, I cannot do anything. I cannot be good to my family. I can do and cannot do anything positive. I don't want to live like that. And 
um, and when you see he see those uh, uh, histories, they, when you see those uh, the stories, and you talk to them, um, then they, you want to literally take more risk for the patient, and then give them an option. Um, obviously, we are not cavalier about doing surgery, but I think that has been my blessing, that I reduce the risk of the surgery so much. Now. Giving a five-level fusion option to an elderly, 80-year-old is a totally reasonable thing to do. And those patients are coming from entire United States to me for that exactly that reason. They are told by five other surgeons there is nothing can be done for them. They have to live with the pain. And they don't accept that. Thanks God we have internet. They, they go and learn about their problem and they, found, they find us and they come to us. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And yeah, that's a occurrence. And especially the deeper you go, the more risk it is, right? Because with surgeries, we're going to have to deal with anesthesia, oxygen, breathing, even just the aftercare, right? I know, remember just even reading the instructions and going through during my training, it's like post like post fusions. If they're going posteriorly, they have to make sure they can't get that wet, right? Because we're risking leak in cerebral spinal fluid, like all those different risk factors. And so being able to have these minimally invasive procedures, it allows us to, to get it moving. And one of the things, um, so the, the technique that um, I read of yours that you were doing successfully was the OLLIF. Um, and um, I thought it was, and, and, Coming up to this, I was trying to do a little bit of research to just get a little bit more knowledge about the the techniques and also the outcomes as well. I think one of the concerns that people say like, okay, well, these surgeries are just short-lived. Oftentimes, people are waking up just out of anesthesia and they're not in pain. It's like, well, of course, they're not in pain. They're still having anesthesia in their body. And I see this also in patients who are coming out of hip and knee replacements as well. They're feeling great during days one, two, and three, but then it's days five through 10 is actually where the worst happens because the anesthesia wears off, the swelling gets worse. And so I started thinking, okay, well, what are the six month, one year, two year outcomes? Cause that actually helps us figure out, you know, is, is it actually helpful? And it was really exciting to see that that technique and the papers that you wrote actually talked more about those six months, one year and two year outcomes. So could you share us a little bit more about the, that, that procedure and what, what are some of those indications for that? Absolutely. Now, well, no, we described the method of the surgery through our anatomical approach. Like we called it posterior lumbar interbody fusion. Interbody fusion, so you see a lot of lifts, LIF, lumbar interbody fusion. And that is how we get to the disc. That's how it describes. P, PLIF, posterior, meaning coming from the back. Transforaminor or TLIF is coming a little to the side, not directly from the back, and bypassing the spinal cord, just going tangential to sp uh, spinal cord through the disc. And then there is a so-called far lateral, meaning going a little more to the side. And there is the anterior, ALF, 
coming from the front, opening up your belly, pushing the organs to the side and going there. And then there is so-called direct lateral or X-lift, extreme lateral, where you go directly from the side, but still you have to go through some organs and so on. And then there is two kinds of OLF. One OLF, you go oblique through the front, that is O-L-I-F, and we add to that ATP anterior to psoas. Psoas is a muscle in the front that we are in the front of that muscle. And then there is, so in and that procedure, you still have to go through the belly. And then there is so-called OLLIF or oblique lateral posterior lumbar body fusion, which is my procedure where patients on the belly. And then we go uh, truly at an oblique angle from the back. And we are exactly at the border between the abdominal organ and the muscle of the back. And that is a very thin membrane. And just in the last 10, 15 years, we have the tools and the knowledge to navigate in that very thin, almost membrane, find a safe path to the disc and do the surgery through a tube that is barely thicker than this pen. And that's all the advantage of the thing come from. Right? We don't have to go through the belly to open up all your organ, go through your major vessel, put them at danger. We don't have to fillet your back. We go exactly between those two major structure and respect them both. And that enable us to get to where the problem is without causing a lot of collateral damage. And that is why this patient, so I'm going to just give you statistic. My patient usually walk within two hours after the surgery. They usually, 96% uh, of them are discharged within 24 hours. Um, about uh, for two to four weeks after the surgery, vast majority of my patients are back to basic daily activity. And within four to six months, bones start growing. For traditional surgery, at least double, triple, quadruple those numbers. So most of the efficiency in medicine comes in five and 10% intervals. Now, all of a sudden, we have a procedure that in every category, few hundred percent um, improvement on what's already down there. But as well, the problem is truly navigating in that very thin membrane, it requires a lot of uh, skills and instrumentation and training. Not that it's very special that get, any surgeon can get those experience and those skills, but you know, that is not, because this is new. This is not being taught in universities. And we are just gaining momentum to teach that. And that is why I took on myself. Actually, I bring surgeon and I teach that. There is another month that I don't go nationally and internationally and teach this technique. We just got invited to go to India and uh, Saudi Arabia to teach the technique. I came back from Oman and Ecuador and Germany. I taught this procedure just this year. And so wow. um, I think uh, there, there is that the, our medical uh, community is mature enough now, is ripe to embrace this. And like any other new technique, it has been a huge uh, resistance to anything new. Medicine is the most uh, the conservative kind of thing we have. We stick to old ways, but it's, it's now truly spreading out. Good. And I'm glad. I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, so as you're describing this, I'm visualizing, uh, say like a piece of uh, your, uh, let's see, um, 
corned beef, for example, like what's really interesting about corned beef, it's brisket. Brisket actually is two cuts kind of formed together. But what's really interesting is that the, it, it's considered one cut, but there's a thin membrane that actually separates between the two. And you don't necessarily need to slice the meat in order for you to separate it. So I think that's really helpful. And it's exciting to hear that the, the less force you need to apply, the less collateral damage, as you said, the better the 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 healing process. And I love the fact, and especially early on in this conversation, Dr. Abbasi, you talked about, um, I mean, one, the surgery is a tool, it's a technique, but you're going through all these different stops before you actually even consider this patient going through a, a surgery like that. Because even though it's mentally invasive, they're still putting themselves under the knife. And absolutely. And as you described, there's a lot of really good benefits, but that's only if we exhausted all those different options. And so, um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm in such agreement with that. I'm really appreciative that, that you're sharing this with the world and sharing it with us because the, this is a, a great opportunity for, is another opportunity for people to experience pain relief when they couldn't, especially when they've lost hope. And yeah. so we've talked about the benefits. We talked about the technique itself. Um, tell us a little bit about the risks, right? Because every time that we get under anesthesia or anything, there's going to be some sort of risk just so that we can have a better understanding. No, it's not. Surgery is not the only thing we do. As a matter of fact, surgery is a small thing, what we do. Now, who needs the surgery? Who can benefit from other things? That is a major thing we do. We have developed what we call a so-called inspired spine multidimensional protocol. You remember we had a joke that if you give five spine surgeons one case, you come back with seven different opinions. And one of the tragedy of spine is that the kind of treatment you get has nothing to do with your pathology, but who you meet first. Now, we are trying to overcome this problem by protocol that is very visual. You can go to YouTube, as a matter of fact, and put Inspired Spine Multidimensional Protocol. I give a, a whole presentation of that. There are very few conditions that you hit the door, you get the surgery, less than 2%, where something is pushing on the nerve, and if you don't treat it, the damage will become permanent because the nerves are very delicate. But beside that, or instability, like you have an accident and your spine is just moving the wrong way. But beside that, the saying among us is, if anybody else can help the patient, we shouldn't. Even though our procedures are very little traumatic to the tissue, but still a surgery, you're absolutely right. In medicine though, the risk-free procedure does not exist. But what we do in our studies that we have published, we have 11 of them published. In the peer review, you just have to go to PubMed or a National Institute of Health, NIH, Abbasi, Olaf, then you get all those papers. We compare it to what's the standard of care. By standard of care, it's so-called TLIF, transferaminal lumbar body fusion. And in our study, we compare them very clearly. Like um, in a transferaminal, the standard of care, the risk of infection is three to 5%. In our study, the risk of infection has been 0.2%. The bleeding is one-tenth of the open surgery. The risk of nicking the dura, you remember you talked about the CSF leak and the cerebrospinal fluid leaking out. That risk in that open surgery in TLIF is about 8.7%. In our 1,500 case study, now the single CSF leak has been observed. Then there's a nerve irritation route, uh, nerve root irritation or nerve irritation 
Everybody hush hush in the literature, the early result, they go to one year result. That one year result varies significantly, but in average is considered one to 3%, in some studies, 5%. In our study, uh, in 303 patients, only one patient had damage from the surgery itself. That makes it 0.3%. Some other people had non-life limiting, not, not deficit, like some numbness and so on. But so comparing it to the traditional surgery, the improvement is not 10, 15%. It's by a multitude, like the one-tenth of the blood loss. Like open surgery has 1,000% more blood loss. Open surgery has 15 times more risk of infection and so on and so forth. But all of those are truly published. And it's when you come to the core of it, it becomes very trivial. You cause so little damage, so your body has to recover from less um, damage to the tissue. And so you recover faster and better. I mean, that's all actually very trivial, all what's to it. It's really helpful. Um, and I'm glad to, I'm so glad that you were able to share the comparisons because yeah, the, the more trauma people experience, the more, the higher at risk it is. And so Dr. Abbasi, it's, it's such a privilege to have someone like of your caliber to have in really kind of spearheaded this new approach and going around the world and teaching other physicians about it. And also really using that multidisciplinary approach to make it so that if someone else can fix it, <laughs> let them do it before they have to actually even go over the knife. And I love that. Um, love that. And so um, you're teaching these, these physicians surgeons all across the world. Um, and what's really cool is that the listeners here are living all across the world as well. So if someone is at their wit's end, they've tried everything and they said, okay, I, I want to see you, even if these opportunities and, and seeing the teachings, um, you know, people under your teachings, what is the best way for the, for the listeners to either get in touch with you or, or get more information about how to access the care that you and your clinics provide? Um, it's just Google Inspired Spine. That is all you need to do and it gets you there. Now, um, there is a reason I called this, we call this Inspired Spine. It comes back to a quote from Mark, um, uh, Max Planck. Max Planck is the father of quantum physics. The reason you and I we can talk on a computer is because they have built these chips understanding very tenant of the quantum physics, how electrons work, how they interact, how... So when he came with this revolutionary idea, um, he, well, he people laughed at him. They didn't take him seriously. Many, many years later that he, what he did was another matter of laughing anymore and it was widely accepted and he won the obviously Nobel Prize for that. He sort of summarized why he was successful. He said the, the, the big moments in the human history, in the science, he was referring to science, they don't come from big universities or big names and so on. They come from inspired, he, that's the word he used, they come from inspired individuals who dare to go in the front of the status quo and find a different way, think outside of the box. And 
there's another very cynic uh, quote from him because he was denied by lots of his contemporaries. And he said, science uh, uh, improves one funeral at the time because those people who don't deny that improvement and so on. And I want to emphasize that here that uh, for the last first uh, seven years when I was doing this, it was a lonely fight. But now it's really gaining acceptance. But that's not unusual in medicine. There's a story I want to share for everybody listening to that. Go read about Barry Marshall. Is that name, it says anything to you? <laughs> um, rings a bell, but tell me more. So Barry Marshall won a Nobel Prize for his persistence. He was an Australian doctor who discovered something very special. See, in 1950s, 60s, and 70s, there was a disease that we barely hear about it anymore. It was used to call gastric or duodenal ulcer. You would have a hole in your stomach and you would bleed and you would die. The solution for that would cutting open, you open, cutting you open, and cutting your stomach out, the part of the stomach that was bleeding, cutting it out. There were hospitals that were just specialized in that. In some estimate, about one-tenth of the patients from those surgeries died. Morbidity, mortality up to the roof, but that was the only thing we could do. He found out in the stomach of many of those people who have that, there is a bacteria that is like a, like a corkscrew. And that, for that reason, it was called Helicobacter pylori, because Helicobacter, meaning that you know, it's like a corkscrew, and pylori, because it was in pyloris, meaning in the part of the stomach, it was isolated from there. And he was wondering if that has anything to do with these ulcers. And he, lo and behold, he found out that that can actually be the reason, not can, but that is the reason why these people stomach become weak, then the acid eats through the flesh and they bleed and die. He said, this is a, a gastric ulcer, it's a bacterial disease. Let's treat it with antibiotic. I hate to say what we did, what medical community did to him. They literally laughed him off the stage. Do you know what he had to do to get accepted? He had to infect himself with Helicobacter pylori, get a gastric ulcer, then treat himself with antibiotic, and then prove, but you know, he's persistent. Yeah. Uh, paid off. He got, got the Nobel Prize. But do you know how long it, it took for his knowledge to get acceptance? 20 30 years. Yes. Whoa. 20, yeah. 20 years. Oh my gosh. Do you know oh my gosh. Do you know how many, how many people died of those procedures in that 28 years? I mean, if you're looking at one in 10, right? And they're probably doing, I mean, we'll say the surgeries. Right. So we're yeah. probably looking at, I mean, we'll say conserv conservative. Yeah, hundreds of thousands, right? Um, wow. And so being able to say, be able to look at a problem and say, why can't we create a solution to this? Yeah. I think that's uh, that's important. And I think one of the challenges um, in, in just in medicine in general, even in the physical therapy world, is that we, we leave our school and we kind of put these blinders on saying, like, this is going to be our wheelhouse. Like, we've always treated that way. And I mean, I think one of the, the, the most, most dangerous thing in life, yeah. we always have done it that way. We've always had done it. Exactly. And so I really appreciate Dr. Abbasi being able to, in a way, 
in the most positive way challenge the infrastructure and what has been done but going it at a way of and i and i really appreciate your attitude of, of going into this because a lot of people when it comes to initiating change they're thinking okay we're going to disrupt the market like we're doing this because we're so tired of x y and z but you you came into it saying why can't we do this with less trauma for our patients and being able to go through that and finding those membranes that allow us to be able to address these issues with the least collateral collateral damage as possible. And I think that's um, extremely um, powerful and, uh, and it, and it is great. And um, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Abbasi. Um, your, your, your knowledge is, is amazing. And I'm so excited for the listeners to hear about this, to see what options are there in the event that they've gone through various different modalities and they're thinking, okay, well, I might need to go under the knife, but how, but why not go through the minimally invasive opportunity first um, and, and try that out, especially with the multimodal approach, the protocol that you're recommending. So thank you again. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, you may know we have our own podcast, which is called Essence of Medicine. I'd like to invite you to our podcast and enjoy from your knowledge in your physical therapy so I'm officially inviting you to come to one of our podcasts and share your knowledge with that. Oh my goodness. That would be a fantastic. I would absolutely would enjoy that if you could as well continue with me this uh, campaign of educating our patients. Absolutely, Dr. Bassi. Uh, it would be an honor. So thank you. Thank you very much. Well, it has been my pleasure, absolute pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you got some help from today's podcast. And for more info, check us out at ifixyoursciatica.com. Have a fantastic and pain-free day. No patient-therapist relationship is formed by listening to this podcast. We are not providing medical advice and all information should be confirmed by a medical provider.